Today, the title of the message is Jesus the Judge, Part 2. So if you weren't here for Part 1, let me tell you three or four things really quick. And let me just help you understand this. If you're taking notes today, write these references down real quick. Exodus 12, Psalm 105, 135, and 136. If you want to look up some detailed accounts of God's judgment, his righteous judgment in the Old Testament, you will see that pictured in those places. That's just a handful, just a small handful, but they're very significant. So I want to make sure that you have those. Um, we talked about this last week. Revelation 6 only has six of the seven seals. So today we'll cover two left in chapter 6. And then the seventh one gets broken in chapter 8, which we'll cover. The four horsemen, just to give you a summary or a synopsis, the four horsemen are going to be allowed to unleash unprecedented disaster, torment, torture, catastrophe on a scale like the world has never seen before. There are some theologians and Bible scholars and pastors and even those who are developing their end times theology, we call eschatology. That's the study of end times or the study of the end of all things that look at the four horsemen and they see some correlations to localized things that happened during the first and second century. And they say, Hey, these are already done. When we looked at that section of scripture last week, we realized it's these things are going to be unprecedented in a way that the entire world is going to feel, and we have yet to see those. They are future events. When they will happen, I do not know. I do not try to estimate to know. I don't think that's wise, and in fact, God's, God's word warns us against setting times and dates for Jesus' return. But I do say this, that the world will feel the crush of God's wrath and the punishments that he'll dole out. It's also important to remember this, and if you're trying to understand Revelation and you're like, the last time I thought about the end of the world was when I was in Sunday school 10 years ago, 20, 30, 50 years ago, just know this, in context, Revelation chapters 1 through six, nowhere does it say that the church or believers are going to be exempted from these sufferings. In fact, the apostle John, as he's writing and corresponding the letters that he's given by Jesus himself to give to those churches, several times mentions those who endure to the end, even the giving up of their life will receive a reward from God. So we're not exempted from all of the suffering. In fact, if you've ever read the Bible, I know it doesn't really compare to your real life sometimes because we cry and we pray and we complain to God, God, why am I going through this? <clears throat> sometimes the things we go through are for our benefit, for our learning, our knowledge, for our learning to trust God for us to develop character and Christ-like character in our life. Sometimes it's the way of the world. Sometimes it's a result of other people's decisions. Sometimes it's our own stupidity. But let me just tell you, there are some times that God allows suffering. And we've got to be able to make sure that we understand that properly. We have an amazing promise from Jesus in the midst of whatever suffering we face that if we endure till the end, we will be saved. We are not left without hope. Can I get a loud amen? Amen. amen. Uh, the events that we talked about last week and the ones that we'll talk about today, they are not the end or culmination of all that God's planned. They are signs leading up to the end. God's wrath is about to be poured out in this passage of scripture that we're reading, read last week and we'll read today. It's about to be poured out on the rebellious nations and the whole earth. I want you to think about this in terms of the destruction of creation. As we read through this and you think, 
gosh, how harsh is this that God will put us through all of this stuff and the earth will go through all of this natural disasters and catastrophes and chaos and violence and people killing one another and all this stuff. Why is it that we're going to endure this? I want you to envision it or think about it in terms of God deconstructing what we have tainted and marred in order for him to rebirth something Here's the hope that you and I should have. It's that the God we serve brings order to chaos and he always makes things good. Amen. And so he's about to redeem after the destruction of creation. He's about to finally redeem in fullness all things. Amen. So God is going to reestablish a new earth for his kingdom and his people. Go with me in your Bibles today to Revelation chapter 6, and we'll read about the fifth seal starting in verse 9. The Bible says this, When he, the Lamb, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Let me say something to you right here. Authentic teachers and preachers of the word of God, students of the word of God, will understand that we are going to endure some of the suffering that we talked about. And those who are false preachers and teachers and not authentic true believers will be the ones who always talk about how to avoid any suffering. Because here, God is saying, and we'll, you'll see it revealed in just a moment, these martyrs, for their faith, have become a sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Verse 10, it says that the souls of those who were under the altar cried out and prayed. Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long... Before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Do you remember the series on prayer several months back? We talked about prayers of imprecation. This is, this could be considered one of those prayers. It seems like it's a revengeful sort of prayer, but they are saying this. I gave my life for you and they're still running around down there having the time of their life. God, when are you going to judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Verse 11. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters should be complete who were to be killed that's future from that moment, as they themselves had been. So there's some really interesting language that John uses here, and I want to just pick apart a few of these things. And the first one would be this, the phrasing of something being under the altar. Now, you may have prayed at a wooden altar, you know, with a pad on it or not um, before. And you may have done like I did as a kid and felt underneath it. And there's like gum underneath, you know, boogers, whatever. Okay, listen to me. In the Old Testament, there is nothing under the altar. There's no correlation to this phrase. It doesn't appear anywhere in scripture outside of here under the altar. Now, what it's signifying is it's signifying God's protection of those who are under the altar. They are being divinely protected. Not only have they given their life in the world for the sake of their testimony and because of God and his word, the persecution that they've suffered has caused them death, but now they're being protected under the altar. I want you to think about this altar, we talked about this several weeks ago, as the heavenly representation of the altar of incense from the tabernacle. 
If you were here during that message, I pointed out on the screen that the altar of incense was the last altar right before you went into where the presence of God was. It was right in front of the curtain or the veil that separated the presence of God from his people. Never was there to be an offering put on that altar that was a blood sacrifice, a grain offering, a drink offering is never poured onto that altar. The only thing that goes on that altar is incense. And incense, all the way throughout scripture, is related to prayers. So if you just imagine God's throne room as we've been talking about it, and now you can see underneath the throne, underneath the altar before him, are these believers who have been martyred. It gives us this idea of them being divinely protected. And here's something really interesting. In Exodus chapter 30, you can read about this altar of incense. There was a day, what they called in the Old Testament, and is still referred to today by the Jewish people, the Day of Atonement. During the Day of Atonement, essentially what would happen in Exodus 30, it, it outlines it. It was an annual day where sacrificial blood was taken from the sacrifice on the sacrificial altar out there in the outer court, and it was taken and it was dripped, drained, poured onto the four corners of the altar of incense. And what it was, the Day of Atonement, was like hitting the reset button on a computer or restarting your phone when it's acting up. It causes everything. I hated when I talked to IT. <laughs> have you ever done that? And they're like, have you tried restarting it? Yes, I have, and it's still not working, okay? Listen, God has a reset button that he hit every single year at the Day of Atonement where they would go through and purify. And you say, Pastor, how does it work out that blood would purify something? It's significant because God says that life is in the blood. So life had to be given this is good. It's better than you're giving me credit for. Life had to be sacrificed in order for a reset. That's still true. The life of Jesus Christ was the great reset for all of humanity. The opportunity, at least, for a reset. So understand that being under the altar may, may sound kind of strange and weird, um, but you should think about it in terms of it being the altar of incense because prayer is being offered up there. And we've talked about this and the significance in chapters 4 and 5. So John says that he sees these souls that have been martyred for their faith. This is really important for us to understand. I think that we should understand that these are believers who have been directly killed as a result of sharing their faith or living out their faith. You know how we talk about worship sometimes as being singing, but also worship as a lifestyle? I want you to understand your faith is not just a private, personal, in between you and God and no one else kind of faith. The faith you've been given is meant to be shared. Can I get a loud amen? So when we share it, even in the face of persecution, and how many of you have seen any of the current news about the crazy stuff with the Dodgers? Just raise your hand. Okay, you could look it up later. Two or three of you pay attention to the news. Some of us don't even watch it because it's a lot of garbage and it's always slanted. I get it. I just want you to understand something. There are people who are having to cow down to cultural gods in our world today here in America who are believers. They are not standing for the truth and for righteousness. They are kind of cowering down. Then there are those who are saying, I don't care about my contract with that sports team. I don't care what happens to me. I believe the word of God says this. And when you do that, you will face persecution. So these martyrs have died as a result of their faith. And as Christians living in America, we can get really lulled to sleep with this idea of religious protection. We live in the freest country of the world. All of those things. You've heard me talk about this recently. 
And I'm going to tell you, I do not own a tinfoil hat. I'm not an alarmist. I've heard messages preached like this 30 years ago. And I will still stand here today preaching it as well. Because it has increased incrementally. Listen to my language. It has increased incrementally over the last five decades. Now it is increasing exponentially just as quick as you can blink. And it's not just bakers who are going to court for things. It is a lot of stuff. You say, even here in the deep south in the Bible Belt? Yes, even here. So let me give you what a scholar, I came across this article a couple weeks ago and it was really good. I'm just going to give you the five things that he mentions in the process of persecution. And I want you to pay attention and think about if you've seen any of these things be done in America. Stereotyping the targeted group. This is this involves um, social pressure in order to conform to whatever ideology that the, the world and its systems are giving. Vilifying the targeted group. That means putting limitations on them. I'm not going to get into any kind of discussion about politics or COVID today. But I'm telling you, the government essentially shut down places of worship here in America vilifying, putting limitations, harassment, disapproval. That's what that, that involves, all of those things. The third step in that process is sliding them to the side, marginalizing them and their role in society, removing their freedoms and saying, oh, that's just those weird Pentecostals. Oh, that's just those weird Christians over there. Well, I'm a Christian too, but I don't believe like they do. There's division, separation, all of those things that happen in the marginalization of our faith. Then criminalization happens in persecution. These are next steps from step one, making them sound bad, two, to taking it to another level. The third step, the fourth is criminalizing them by giving restrictive laws. Our neighbors to the north have restrictive laws. You cannot talk about things that are in the Bible from a pulpit in Canada today. You say, pastor, are you crazy? What kind of weird website are you looking at to get this news? Look for it. It's not hidden. They have criminalized and they've done it. They were doing it years ago. When I was a college student and spent a summer in Sweden and touring around through Lithuania, Latvia, Belarus, Sweden, Norway... In that day and time, this was before the year 2001, before 9-11. In that day and time, there were criminal prosecutions happening all the time, especially to the main church that we went to in Sweden. The pastor had been imprisoned for a time because he spoke about marriage in 2000. So they've criminalized it in other places. We can't think that like, oh, everything's going to be all right. I'm telling you, it's getting worse. It's gotten worse, and it's going to get a whole lot worse. You say, Pastor, again, I came for a joy-filled message that's going to give me some hope. Here's the hope that we have. If we endure till the end and stand up for the truth, there is a reward by the God of all creation to be given to every believer because he will answer the prayers of those who are under the altar. Amen? The fifth is actual persecution, including imprisonment, torture, and death. You say, well, I sure don't want to be around here for that. <laughs> I don't either. But if we are, you better hold true to the Bible that you've been reading, and you better read it a whole lot more frequently, <laughs> and you better live it. Amen? Can I get an amen? If you're spiritually awake, you will understand this reality. I think it's unwise and ignorant for us to just sit back and say, everything will be all right. I mean, it's America. I think that's foolish. Stages one through four are already happening in our nation, and we are primed and ready, if, if not already categorized, in stage number five. 
So this is something important. It's important not just for you as a believer, whatever age you are as an adult, but it's important so that we build faith in our children and our grandchildren, that we minister the word of God to them and help them to understand. John 16, verse 33, Jesus says this, and this is the encouragement. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you would have peace. I am not up here to fear monger today. I'm not up here to get you scared. I'm here to repeat the words of Christ and say that he said this in him. You can have peace in the midst of whatever chaos there is in the world. You will have trials and tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Listen, the faith that we espouse is greater than the faith that an Islamic person has in a dead prophet. The faith that you espouse is better than the animist religion in places like Vietnam. It's better than the religions of any other religion anywhere in the world that believes in any other deity or any other God. And we'll talk about that shortly in just a moment. All nations will receive their reward The prayer of the martyrs is to judge and avenge their blood. And you say, pastor, I don't know if I can, can I pray like that? Would you avenge me, God? My boss cut me out of that promotion. There's evidence in scripture to pray like that. So avenging them, they're saying, God, we gave our souls for this. The Bible says in, I believe it's verse, go back to the um, Revelation 6. I think it's verse 10. It says this, that they were given a white, verse 11, they were given a white robe and they were told to rest a little longer. So they're told to rest a little longer and here is something very interesting. God is basically saying, I've heard you, I'm working on it. If I could be as casual as to paraphrase God's word I've heard your prayer and I'm working on it, but there's still work to be done. And what he says there is very interesting until your number be made complete. In other words, God knows that there are still others living on the earth who will be killed for their faith. And once they have been killed for their faith, they'll be added to the martyrs in heaven. I believe in heaven today, there is praise to the God of all creation, the one who's seated on the throne by those who have already given their life for the sake of the gospel. And this isn't just talking about a pastor in an Indian village somewhere. This is talking about any believer who's ever been persecuted for their faith and died as a result. I believe that there is a crown, a special reward for those who endure till the end. So let's go to verse 12. This is the sixth seal. Remember, when we think about things like God's judgment, keep reminding yourself about his sovereignty. Verse 12, it says this, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black. The full moon became like blood And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale like a wind. Verse 14, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. Look up at me for just a second and and think about this. I don't know how many of you grew up with or currently have in your house. Shades, the kind that you pull down and then they go up real fast on the little roller thing. Okay, this is the imagery that John is giving us. Now, they didn't have shades back then like we do now. But just so that you understand, he's saying that the sky was ripped out of its place like a scroll that's being rolled up quickly. It says this, every mountain and island was removed from its place. And verse 15, then the kings of the earth... The great ones and the generals, the rich, the powerful, and everyone, whether they were slave or free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks, the leftovers of the mountains. 
calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Verse 17 says this, for the great day, and I want you to read this a little bit differently. I want you to read it how I'm telling you to read it, only because it's significant. When we say wrath throughout scripture, we're talking about God punishing people, okay? God's wrath being poured out. It says, for the great day of their wrath has come. It's not saying their wrath to one another. It's saying the great day of their punishment from God has come. And who is able to stand? Who can stand? So let's be clear about this sixth seal. And remember the scroll that we've been talking about. It has seven seals on it. So even once you've gotten to the sixth seal and you've sliced it with the letter opener all the way through, the seventh seal is still there and it's preventing you from opening the scroll fully to see all of its contents. But here in this passage in verses 12 through 17, we're reading about natural catastrophes. We're reading about um, celestial ones, stuff that's happening above what we would call in the scripture is referred to as heavens or sky that you and I see with our eyes. And we're also seeing catastrophes that have supernatural effects. Now, I want to break a couple of these things down in this passage too before we get to that final seventh seal so that you fully understand what you're reading when you go through and read it. Earthquakes. How many of you have ever been in an earthquake? Anybody? You have. You've like witnessed, endured. Okay, you have. Was it scary? Just nod at me and tell me. Was it terrible? Terrifying? So-so? Okay, depends on, depends on how heavy uh, on the Richter scale it hit, but uh, wow. So experiencing an earthquake and the earth actually shaking is an incredible thing. If you've ever seen the video footage on the news of an earthquake, and we know that tsunamis developed as a result a couple years ago and some other disasters like that, when an earthquake happens, everything is shaken. It is unmistakable. It's not just a boom of something that happens. It is the quaking, the shaking of the earth. Sometimes in scripture, earthquakes are given as a sign of God's wrath. Sometimes they're a sign of a supernatural event. The Bible says the earth quaked when the prisoners named Paul and his cohorts were set free from the prison. That an earthquake in order to deliver them, not to bring God's wrath, but to deliver them out of the situation that they were in. And it also says that it happens during appearances of either an angel or God himself. The earth quaked at Mount Sinai when God's presence came down. We hear about the earth quaking uh, to some degree in the garden when the tomb has been opened and the angel is there. So the earthquaking, that's a natural sort of catastrophe that happens. But he also talks about the sun going black and the moon going red. You've heard me hint at these things recently. Um, if you did pick up a copy of the Four Blood Moons book that was written by a famous pastor um, years ago, the essential idea behind it was a tetrad, that means a, a group of four red moons would happen within a series of time, and then that would mark the end of the world or the beginning of the end of the world or Jesus' return or something very, very significant. That happened in 2015, and nothing super significant really did happen. That's why I say people kind of wasted their money if you read that book. It's the same thing with, if you're old enough to remember this, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Returning in 1988. It's 2023, and he hasn't got, he's not gotten here yet. So I'm just saying the prophecy profiteers that are out there, we'd, they would love to earn money on any of these things. But I want to just tell you what the sun being black and the moon being the color of blood, being red, would mean. So the sun, obviously the source of light for our day, if it goes black, this means that it's temporary dis temporarily disabled. You say, well, pastor, that sounds like something I've actually witnessed. Yes, 
it could be a solar eclipse where the moon basically gets in between us. And then all of a sudden you see the sun with just a tiny little yellow ring. And you see, have you, you ever witnessed that or seen one of those, a solar eclipse? So this could be what John is hinting at, but you have to still keep paying attention because I think it's important that we understand if you keep reading in Revelation, the sun is still out. So this is not the destruction, complete destruction of the sun. When I looked up some details, I have fun doing this message series because um, I'm like learning some science stuff, some history stuff, uh, reminding, refreshing myself on some of it. But when I looked it up, I basically just typed in a search and ended up to NASA's website. NASA believes that it would take about eight minutes if the sun actually just disappeared out of our solar system. If it went away and that it wasn't the source of light, it would take about eight minutes for us to realize that because of the time that light travels. So we'd all be living happy, hunky-dory, everything's great. And then eight minutes later, we'd realize, whoa, it's completely dark. Now, according to the scientists at NASA and other top minds, they say that humans would be okay for the first few days but the earth's temperature would begin dropping rapidly, exponentially, and within a very short period of time, all humans on earth would die. What I'm trying to say is if it went black, we're not told how long it went black in John's vision, but if it went black for any extended period of time, that would affect the entire world, the entire earth. It wouldn't just be visible from a place like North America, South America, Asia, Europe, something like that. It would be visible to the entirety of the world. The only one who set the sun in its place is the only one who can change its course, alter its chemistry, shut it off, turn it back on. He's the only one who has the capability of doing that. The moon, and, and the, the verse there, it says the sun turns black as sackcloth. That's a, an old antiquated phrase we don't use anymore, but essentially it meant like mourning, like the clothes that you would wear to a funeral, black as black can be, okay? So the moon doesn't shine its own light, right? We know this from fifth and sixth grade science, maybe. Um, the moon does what? Loudly, everybody who's a grown-up in here... <laughs> It, thank you. It reflects the light of the sun. It doesn't create its own. So a blood or a red moon, and I don't know if you saw the moon the other night, it was spectacular. Um, in modern scientific terms, though, a blood or red moon, uh, that happens, that moment happens as a result of light on the other side of us passing through our atmosphere. And then when we look at the moon and see the moon, we see it red. It didn't change colors. It's because of particles and things in our atmosphere, in our point of view that we see it. A lunar eclipse is when the earth obscures the sun's light from hitting the moon. It could be possible that John witnessed this. We're not told whether this was only natural or if it had other implications. We're not even told if it was simultaneous, because I will tell you this, and I hope you're not bored with this science lesson, but you can't have a solar and a lunar eclipse at the same time. It just go look it up online, okay? The sun stays over here, the moon's over here for one or the other. They can't be at the same place at the same time. There's something very strange happening if, if that's happened. In fact, I would say this, this is not the only occurrence of the syntax of these events in scripture. And when I say syntax, I mean like the, the labeling of these as a group, the sun going black, the moon being red, the earth quaking, things like that. It's not the first time these things get mentioned in this order. In fact, Joel prophesied that that would happen at the day of the Lord, the day of his appearing, the day, the great day of the Lord that we know of in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we also think of as the day of atonement. Joel prophesies about it, and Peter quotes it on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He says, listen, 
it's too early in the morning for this whole church of people to be drunk. They're not drunk on wine. They are filled with the Spirit of God. In fact, he begins to quote, he says, and this is made true today, the same prophecy from Joel, which was in those days, your sons and your daughters will dream dreams and have visions and they'll prophesy and they'll... He's rephrasing and repurposing what Joel said back in Joel chapter 2 in Acts chapter 2. And now we're seeing it in Revelation chapter 6. These events taking place. It's unclear if John is seeing these things in succession. Like he saw the sun go black and it was black for a time. And then comma. And then the, the moon went red for a while. Comma, like we don't know, we're not given the space of time, or if they were happening all at the same time. Whatever he's witnessing, listen to me closely, is a complete upheaval of our solar system. Immediately, he begins to refer to stars falling and the sky vanishing. There is something to be said about what he is witnessing in this moment. Now we're going to look at stars in verse 13, because I want to help you understand that they have a dual meaning in scripture. They have both a cosmic like celestial, okay, just heavenly in the sky sort of context, but the Bible actually refers to them. And the authors that use that language refer to them in many different places with a spiritual meaning. And this spiritual meaning is not that we should worship the stars, but when they use star language, they mean something more than just those little dots of light in the sky. So there's an important distinction to be made between these natural and spiritual elements. Sometimes they overlap in scripture. In this passage, however, I don't know whether they overlap or not, but I will tell you there's significant understanding that you need to dig into about a spiritual meaning, two of them, that are here in verse 13. So meaning number one is this. Stars, obviously, they're celestial objects that have been created by God. So that's the meaning number one. When you read in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, for example, it says this. It says, and God said, let there be lights, plural, in the expanse of the sky, it says heavens, but I don't want you to get confused between heaven, the home of God, where believers are, and the expanse of the sky. So the other translation would be sky. To separate the day from the night. And let them be for what? Pay attention to God's word. You've read through this. You've heard the story of creation. But then all of a sudden, when you come to this passage in Genesis 1 verse 11... It says, and let them be for, or uh, sorry, 14, let them be for signs and for seasons, which are appointed times, and for days and for years. Verse 15, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Verse 16, and God made the two great lights, the greater light, the sun to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. This is God creating the universe. Now, this is an example of us understanding that they are actual objects in the sky God put there. Now, there's a second meaning that's really important, and that is this. Pay real close attention and take notes so you can study up on this. Star language is used numerous other places in scripture, and it's used to describe personal, eternal, or transcendent spirits, or heavenly agents. Look at what Isaiah 34 verse 1 through 4 says. This is very interesting. It says, draw near, O nations... Listen, this is not just to Israel in this moment. Isaiah is telling all the nations, draw near and listen up. Give attention, O peoples. 
Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. Verse two, for the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against their host. That word is very important because the other word is star and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Verse three, their slain shall be cast out. The stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. Talking about the people on the earth, he just went from talking about heavenly things to now earthly things. And then verse four, he jumps back and he says this, and all the host of heaven shall rot away. And the skies roll up like a scroll. Does this sound like we just read it in Revelation 6? All their host shall fall as leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. John has this specifically in his mind as he is seeing and witnessing what's happening in Revelation chapter 6. And he's talking about something that is more than just a celestial catastrophe. He's talking about something that has spiritual connotations. That key phrase that I hinted at there, the host, their host. We know of the Old Testament statement where God is called the Lord of hosts of all hosts, God's angry at the nations. He's angry at their host and he's devoted them. The Bible says there in Isaiah 34, he's devoted them to destruction. It's a phrase used for the peoples who were to be conquered in the promised land. That same terminology. When God sent the Israelites into the promised land, he said, I've devoted them to destruction. So destroy them and conquer them. Now we hear the same sort of understanding Isaiah using when he's talking about the host of heaven have been devoted to destruction. These would not be good angels. These would be supernatural spiritual beings that are devoted to destruction. Every time the word or the phrase their host shows up in Hebrew in the Old Testament It speaks of celestial objects, and in many places, it also signifies supernatural powers of darkness. You say, Pastor, I don't know. I'm kind of lost. You're talking some weird stuff. You're saying he saw a solar eclipse, maybe a lunar eclipse, but now when stars fall, that those are spiritual beings. The language that the apostle Paul uses when he says this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, is very important. He says, if you'll put that up for me, in speaking of the armor of God for the believer, he says this famous phrase or verse that we all pretty much know if we've been churched for a little while. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the The word there would be the host or stars, cosmic powers over this present darkness and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul hints at this understanding of stars having a double meaning. We know of that happening in Deuteronomy 32, in Psalm 82, and in all, in a lot of other places in scripture. And then we get to John's revelation in chapter six, and he says, the stars are falling. I've just got to tell you, this is not some apocalyptic movie that you've seen where NASA can shoot some missiles at the stuff that's coming to the earth. It's not a meteor shower. It's not an asteroid that's falling. These are supernatural powers that are being judged by God that John is witnessing. This is really important, the dual purpose of the language that he uses. So we've got to understand God is going to judge and dethrone all the supernatural powers of darkness. It's clear he's witnessing this catastrophe that has physical ramifications, but the language is just as clear to understand that the supernatural powers of darkness, and there's more than just one. One of you believes that. There's more than just one supernatural powers. That's what Paul says. 
against spiritual forces, against many enemies, legions of enemies that work for the main guy who are all fighting to destroy and undermine the kingdom of God and its advancement. Write this down and go look it up yourself. Matthew 24, 29. That's chapter 24, verse 29. And Mark chapter 13, verse 25. Let me just say it like this in summary of this point. All the human powers that oppress the people of God on the earth are going to be judged. And those that have empowered them those powers and forces elsewhere are going to be judged. They are going to get what's coming to them. Should be exciting. Should be exciting. I reference these, but again, if you want to do deeper Bible study, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 82, Daniel 10, and even there in Ephesians chapter 6. The gods of the nations, the false gods that have been served, along with the wicked human powers that have led those nations, will be judged. And this is a great thing because that's the only way to destruct or destroy, deconstruct the original creation and bring it to a place where something new can be made. Verse 14 of Revelation 6 says that they, they essentially have rather die these, these people who are facing the wrath of the mountains. Verse 14, it says, and 15, go to 15, that they, um, that they don't want to face the wrath of the Lamb and that no one is exempted. Did you see this list? The kings, go back. The kings of the earth, the great ones, generals, rich, powerful, doesn't matter if you're a slave somewhere or if you're free, those people hid themselves in the remnants of the mountains, in the little bitty places to hide themselves among the rocks and actually prayed for nature to end their life because they did not want to endure the wrath that was coming. Something really cool is in verse 16. If you paid attention, you saw this. Both the one who's seated on the throne and the lamb. I had a conversation with my brother-in-law recently because I was telling him a little bit about our Revelation series and he had a very interesting question. Can't get into all of it. We're almost out of time. Understand this. If believers are still on the earth, the Holy Spirit is still with them. I said, if believers are still on the earth, the Holy Spirit is still here on the earth. He is preventing them maybe from catastrophe in certain moments. He is helping them. He is comforting them. He is guiding them. He's giving wisdom to them. He is doing what his, what God's word says of him, that he will remind you of all the promises of God. It is, there is a reason for the Holy Spirit's presence on the earth and then in verse 16 you see he's not there mentioned but you see that they are scared of the wrath of the one who's seated and the one who's standing verse 17 the day of their punishment is coming go with me to revelation chapter 8 verse 1 this is the seventh seal and it's super quick not very involved because it's really hard to figure out i'm just going to be straightforward and honest with you i have read until until my eyes turned bloodshot over the last several weeks. I've consulted commentaries, lexicons that uh, help you understand the original language. I've looked at interlinear Bibles that have word for word from the original Greek, Hebrew, all this. I'm telling you there's no consensus on this seal being opened. Look at what it says in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. This is the seventh seal. We're skipping chapter 7. We'll come back to it in a future message. That's the weird, uh, mysterious, I should use that word instead, mysterious 144,000 um, in chapter 7. But then it says this, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, your thoughts about this silence are probably as varied as the amount of material that I've consulted because we're not told why the silence happens and we're not told who it involves. I don't know if because the we just heard in the end of chapter 6, 
the souls of those who are under the altar have now stopped, ceased their praying because God is completing their number in chapter seven. I'm not really sure. I don't know, but I will tell you this. My thought after reading all of the things that I've read, it seems as though this silence is basically an appalled silence of shock and awe. It says it happens in heaven, that it doesn't happen in earth. It happens in heaven. And I believe it's because the contents of the scroll have been revealed in heaven. I believe it's because of that that there's this collective (sighs) because they realize and you'll start to see in chapters eight and nine, there are trumpets and judgments, additional judgments that get poured out on the earth. They, there is a very real possibility based on a handful of commentators and scholars that the reason this silence happens is because that seventh seal is broken. The, the, the scroll is opened up and those who are present witness it and don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. When the, when the reality becomes known to them, that appalled silence is just shocking to them. As you read ver- further in Revelation 8 and 9, um, you'll see angels, trumpets, judgments being poured out, doled out. I believe the safest bet for us, since we're not told very much information, there's a couple places in scripture that talk about silence in the Old Testament but none of them have a good enough like hook and real meat to them in order to communicate exactly what's happening here. So we'll take it for that right now until you tell me something that you found out that is really cohesive and makes sense. You say, pastor, how can you own up to that and say from the platform, you're really not sure (laughs) because I'm not. And And my eyes are bloodshot from reading how many things I've read to try to figure it out. I don't know. And here's the thing. I don't think it's all that important to us now as much as it is for us to know that the other six seals had to have taken place in order to get to that seventh seal. And the safest assumption that you could make would be that once the seal, the last seal is opened and the scroll is unfolded, silence sets in. But it says it only lasts for about a half an hour. That's a true, actual um, interpretation or translation of the wording in Greek that it literally means about 30 minutes in heaven. Um, I don't know how to really uh, go any further about this seal than that. The significance of these things is not for us to stand in a place of fear, but there is a healthy knowledge that comes from knowing that God is, come on somebody, who he said he is, who he has always been, who he said from the very beginning he was, and he keeps his word That promise is for you regarding your job situation, your marriage, your family situation, whatever detail that you, like circumstance you're currently facing. It could even be something as dramatic as persecution on your job for your faith. Whatever it is you're facing, your God is faithful. The God of all creation, the one we've talked about today, the only one worthy to be enthroned in heaven. He is the one who holds time in his hands, holds your life in his hands. Amen. And it's good to know that God's true to his word. It's good to know that he's going to judge the wicked. It's good to know that he's going to rescue those who believe in him and those who suffer through anything. He is going to allow them to receive a reward from him because of their giving of their life for him, for his sake. God is going to bring us full circle back to a new beginning.